Today's scripture is from 1 Samuel 15, 10 through 23. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites, and they spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agog, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys this morning. We're kicking off a new series today looking at the life of David. And David is one of the biggest figures in the Bible. And the the story of his life, which uh, spans kind of the second half of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel, it's the longest continuous narrative in the entire Bible. And at the point that it was written, it was the longest and, and kind of most significant biography that had ever been written up to that point. David in the Bible is a really, really big deal. He's mentioned over 600 times in the Old Testament, 60 references to him in the New Testament. He was the greatest king Israel ever had. And so I'm excited to look at his life and the stories of his life. They're very, they're textured, they're real, they're gritty at times. Uh, but we learn so much about God and his ways with us by looking at the life of this man, David. But today we're not going to look at David. Today we're going to look at Saul. You see, David was the second king of Israel and Saul was the first king. And if you're going to know something about David, you got to know something about King Saul. And there are actually a lot of similarities between these two men. Both of them were called by God. Both of them were anointed by this man, Samuel, who was kind of the religious leader of that day. He was this prophet priest who, who God spoke to, and he spoke the word of the Lord to the people. So both called by God, anointed by Samuel. Both David and Saul demonstrated great courage at times. They both secured great military victories. And yet David's legacy is one of greatness, and Saul's legacy is one of tragedy. When you look at their lives, David's legacy, it's beautiful. And I mean, it doesn't mean it doesn't have its dark spots, but 
his legacy, people looked back upon him as the great king. And people look at Saul as just this really sad, tragic man. And Saul, you know, he starts well. He's kind of humble. We're told he's a handsome man and that he's tall and he's got all the characteristics of what it means to be king. And he's even kind of humble and shy. At one point when they, they're calling him uh, to appoint him as king, he's kind of hiding in suitcases because he's so nervous and timid and shy. And so you kind of like him early on. But over time, Saul just starts to spiral further and further down. Eventually, Saul ends up taking his own life, and it's a tragic story. And so the question that I've wrestled with and the question that I want us to wrestle with this morning is why? Why does Saul spiral down, and why does his life end in tragedy, and why does David's life end with honor and so much glory? And the typical answer people would say is sin, right? Well, Saul was a sinner. Saul was self-seeking and prideful, and he compromised his integrity. But if you know anything about David, you know the same is true for David, right? David's prideful, which is why he commissions the census. He wants to, against the, the will and command of God, he wants to know how big his kingdom is. David is self-seeking. You know, he has an affair with Bathsheba and then has Bathsheba's husband put to death in battle. David compromised his integrity. So what separated these two it wasn't just sin. It was how they responded to their sin. What separated these two was their ability to be honest in the midst of their sin. This is why Saul drifts further and further from the Lord, and while David draws near. One of them could be honest. Now, when we think of the word honest, we think of it almost always interpersonally. Like, I shouldn't lie to that person. They shouldn't lie to me. You shouldn't lie. And that's true. You shouldn't lie. Lying is bad. But the honesty that I'm talking about here is more than just interpersonal. It's honesty before God and honesty ultimately with yourself. It's the ability to look the truth in the eye about who we are, good, bad, and ugly, be able to look it in the eye, be able to own it, and then be able to move forward and address it. David, he was able to do this. Saul was not. Saul lived in this perpetual state of deception. And what we'll see is that this is why Saul's life ends so tragically. And I just want to ask you, are you able to do this? Are you able to look in the mirror and say, this is true about me? And it's dark, and I'm not proud of it, but it's true. Because I'm convinced that, that so many of us, most of us, we fall into the same trap that Saul fell in all the time of self-deception, de self deceiving ourselves, of, of knowing things, but then ignoring that we know them. And if we don't address this, uh, so many problems in our life will just grow. You know, self-deception is not the most terrible thing that we do, but it's what, us, what leads us to doing the most terrible of things. I think of marriage. You know, what is it that destroys the marriage? Is it the problem in the marriage or your refusal to address the problem in the marriage? Which is it that kills you? Is it your addiction to alcohol? Or is it your refusal to admit you are addicted to alcohol? Self-deception that's at work in all of us, it's, it's down deep. And it's at the root of so many of our problems. 
And I don't know if there's a better place in the Bible, a better case study in the Bible of the destructive power of self-deception than here in 1 Samuel 15, the fall of Saul. And so we're going to talk about this morning the capacity, our capacity for self-deception. We're going to talk about the contours, how it actually plays out in our life. And then I want to finish by talking about the cure. How do we, how do we move beyond this? How do we move into a more honest life before God, others, and with ourselves? We're going to start, though, talking about our capacity for self-deception. And, you know, the passage that we read together kind of throws you right into the middle of the story. But if you want to understand this text, you have to understand that at the beginning of chapter 15, God gives Saul a command in chapter 2. And it's kind of a striking command. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And so God comes to Saul, and he says, Saul, I want you to wipe the Amalekites. Every every living thing amongst the Amalekites, I want you to wipe them from the face of the earth. Now, If you have a heart, you read that and you think, how awful. How in the world could God command such a thing? And the sermon is not giving a defense of that command, but I do want to offer you two thoughts that can help you move forward and understand what's exactly happening here. Because a lot of us, we look at that and we say, well, that's just the vengeful God who's just angry and just blows up at people. And we miss, no, 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 there's something really important happening here. For us, we hear Amalekites and They're just like the Jebusites and all the otherites, the termites, you know, in the Old Testament that were like, I don't know. They're the people that surrounded the Israelites. But the Amalekites, there's more to them than that. And and God even hints to it here. When God delivered, you know, the Israelites, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God delivers them through the Red Sea and they're going through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. They're alone they're defenseless. I mean, God is with them, but they don't have any natural defenses. They, they don't have much resources. They're just a wandering people who just got out of slavery. And the Amalekites see this, and they pounce on them, and they attack them. And God, God defends his people, but he never forgot what the Amalekites did. And then if you continue to read from that point up until this point in 1 Samuel, you'll see the name of the Amalekites comes up again and again. They're constantly harassing and picking on the Israelites. They're a wicked, vicious, brutal people who wanted to, you know, take over the Israelites, enslave them, take their possessions, get rich off of them, all these different things. And God, he made a promise One day I'm going to wipe the Amalekites from the face of the earth. And so part of what's happening here is God fulfilling a promise that was made generations before. But there's a second thing that's happening here. When God says, I want you to wipe them all, wipe the camels out. We read that and we think, gosh, that seems really severe. Think about this. In that day, and often in our day as well, wars are fought, you know, in the name of justice. We're going to have a war because we want to bring justice But so often the real reason wars are fought is power and it's money and it's control. And so back in that day, you'd go to war with a rival nation and you would do it so often for the sake of accruing power and wealth. 
And so if you went to war, you'd want to take as many prisoners as you could. You know why? Because then you can ransom them and sell them and get rich off of them. Or you can make them your slaves and get rich off of them. It's also important to remember back in that day, they didn't have like Fort Knox somewhere that they stored all kinds of gold. They didn't have gold bars. That's not, I mean, they probably had some, some coins and things like that. But in that day, a nation's wealth was their livestock. You want to know what, where a nation's wealth was stored? It was in the pastures. And so when God says to Saul, don't spare the cattle, don't spare the sheep, don't spare the camels, don't spare the livestock, and don't spare the people, what God is saying is he's saying, Saul, I want this to be a war of justice, but I want it to be pure justice. He's saying, I don't want this to be a war like every other war. I don't, want you, I don't want you getting rich and fat off of this war. I, God has made it clear to Saul, I want you to be a king after my heart. And I use power than the, differently than the rest of the world. And so don't abuse your power to make yourself rich. Bring justice because justice is needed. But don't get rich off of it. So God gives this command to Saul very, very clear. You know, it's part of the reason I want to read it too. It's very clear. Wipe them all. Get rid of them. Remove them from the face of the earth. But we read in verse 9, but Saul and the army spared Agag, that's the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So Saul doesn't obey. And really this was the fear all along when, when Israel demanded a king. The fear was that king is going to be like every other king on the face of this earth. And when, God, when, when Saul keeps the livestock, and, and you know why he keeps the king, right? Because if you have the king of another nation in slavery in your dungeon, you can say, you know what? I'm the king of kings. This is how powerful we are. And so what's happening to Saul here is he's descending. What's happening to Saul here is he's actually becoming just like the Amalekites. There's some irony, right? He was, he was called by God to bring justice against the Amalekites for their evil, and now he's doing the exact same evil that they've done. God comes to Samuel, the prophet, and he tells him what Saul has done, and Samuel weeps all night because Samuel knows what this means. He knows it means Saul is not fit to be king. He knows that the grand experiment of Israel's first king has failed miserably, and so he weeps. The next morning, he gets up, we're told, in verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel, there he has set up a monument in his own honor. And I just want to hit pause there. I want you to feel this. Samuel's up all night weeping because he knows that Saul has failed as a king. And he's going to look for him. And they're like, ah, I think he's up at Carmel. Oh, what's he doing there? Oh, he's building a giant monument. To God? No, to himself. You know? Samuel reaches him, and we're told that when Samuel finally finds him, that Saul said, 
the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. <laughs> right? There's humor here. There really is. He rolls in. Before Samuel can say anything, his face is probably still swollen with all of the tears that he had cried. And Saul's like, oh, what a day we had. Like, I obeyed God and all that he said, and he gave us this victory, and it's awesome. And so we decided to build a monument. It has been amazing. How you doing, Samuel? You ever heard the phrase, thou doth protest too much? Like Saul knows what, what he's done, but he's also completely oblivious to what he's done. I think that the very first thing out of his mouth is, oh, oh Samuel, you're here. I, I obeyed all the Lord's instructions. It's like he's oblivious to what he's done, but he's not oblivious to what he's done. That's what we call self-deception. Self-deception is the ability to know something and yet not know it because you don't want to know it. Self-deception is to know something about yourself but refuse to acknowledge it, own it, and deal with it because it would just be too painful. And so we lie. We lie to other people. We lie to God. We lie to ourselves. Let me give you two examples of how self-deception plays out in our world. Uh, one's trivial. One's pretty serious, very serious. But the trivial one, we've lived in our house for three years. I love our house. It's a gift from God. But uh, I've been engaged in a battle with our house since almost the day we moved in. Uh, our basement leaks. And if you know anything about our family, you know this is kind of an ongoing saga. It's going to be my biography or autobiography, Kevin versus the basement. Um, every time I think I solve it, every time I think I've dealt with the problem, you know, water starts leaking again. And it's cost so much money, so much time, so much of my energy dealing with this. And so now when my wife... You know, which every few months she'll, she'll say, hey, I think the basement might be leaking. And these days I'm just at the place where, no, 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 I solved it. I fixed it. But there's like water on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably just condensation uh, from the air conditioner as I'm shutting the door, right, to not go down to the basement. I'm sure it's fine. Now, sometimes I'll go down, but a lot of times when she brings it up, I think if I don't go down there, then I won't know, and if I don't know, then I'll have to fix it, right? Anyone relate to that? Am I the only one, right? That's a funny one. Here's a serious one. And I'm telling you this for a reason, both of those for a reason, but stick with me. At the end of World War II, the first concentration camp the Allies liberated was in Ordruf, Germany. And when the Allies got to the camp, there were piles, about 2,000... Uh, bodies piled up all over the camp. And what was going on is the guards were planning to incinerate them to try to get rid of the evidence, the Nazi guards, before the Allies got there. But when they got word that the Allies were close, the guards fled. And so there were just bodies upon bodies upon bodies. General Patton, if you know anything about him, is a very strong kind of alpha male type. He, I read, he, he walked into the camp, looked around, and then promptly threw up. And he was kind of overwhelmed by what he saw. He began to talk to some of the prisoners, and they told stories of how the, the guards would brag about what they were doing, uh, how they would go into the, the town nearby, and they would drink all night and tell stories about what was happening in the camps. And this really enraged Patton, and so he went to the town of Ordruf, and he confronted the townsfolk there. 
And they all were vehement, like we had no idea what was happening. We didn't know. And so he said, well, whether you know or not, tomorrow you're coming to the camp and you're going to help us dig some graves. And so the next day, every able-bodied person from the town of Ordriff shows up, including the mayor and his wife, and they spend the day digging graves. That night, the mayor and his wife go home and they hang themselves. And they leave a suicide note. And in the suicide note, they said, we didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. Now, here's what I want you to see. The same thing that makes me want to shut the door to my basement when it's leaking, the same thing that makes you want to take a piece of electrical tape and cover up the check engine light instead of taking your car to a mechanic, the same thing that causes a husband to storm out of the room when a wife says, there's something I want to talk to you about that's kind of serious, the same reason why a lot of you, you're not going to doctors even though you know something's wrong with your health, it's the same thing that was going on here. It's the same thing that caused these fairly decent citizens, at least seemingly decent citizens of Ordruf, Germany, to become complicit in that horrendous evil. And it's the same thing that led Saul to become a guy who started off decent to becoming just like the Amalekites. Self-deception is not the worst form of evil, but it's what enables the worst form of evil to take root in our life. Lying to ourselves and deceiving ourselves is not the worst thing we can do. But it's the reason, often, the reason for the very worst things that we do as human beings. And I submit to you that many of your biggest problems in life are rooted here. You can't be honest with yourself. You refuse to be honest with yourself. And sin uses that. Hebrews 3 talks about, I think that's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. He talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Don't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I think part of what sin does is it affects us not just biologically, physically, behaviorally, ethically. I think it also affects us psychologically. And it makes it really easy for us to lie to ourselves. And we all have this capacity for it. And so how does it play out? That's the capacity we all have. How does it actually play out in our life? What are the contours that self-deception takes in our lives? And I would say there's probably an infinite number of ways we deceive ourselves, but there's three things that Saul does in this text that I think are very common ways that we practice self-deception. And so I, I want to kind of run through them pretty quickly. The first thing Saul does, verse 12, is he shifts the blame. When, when Samuel rolls up and the first words out of Saul's mouth are, we obeyed the Lord, it's awesome. It's really kind of a funny text because Samuel responds like, oh, you did? What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear. You know, in the original language, what Saul actually says is, I listen to the voice of the Lord. And Samuel responds, oh, really? Then why do I hear the voice of all of these sheep and cows? Like, you didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. And Saul answers, he responds in verse 15, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. See what he's doing here? Oh, the cattle, that was the soldier's deal. Who's in charge? Who's the king? Saul. So what's he doing? Man, he's just passing the buck. 
It wasn't me. It was them. And this is one of the easiest ways, like one of the oldest tricks in the book that we used to deceive ourselves, to not look the truth in the face. You know, I wouldn't be so angry if the kids would just listen better. <laughs> I wouldn't be so bitter towards that person if they weren't such a jerk. I wouldn't be so lonely if, if everyone else wasn't just so cliquish and selfish. Like we always push it to other people. We refuse to say, well, gosh, if no one wants to be around me, maybe there's something in me. No, 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 it's always their fault. This anger, if I'm always blaming it on other people, I'm not dealing with what's going on in my soul. It's one of the oldest tricks in the book. We all do this. It's one of the ways we deceive ourselves. Another way we deceive ourselves is we minimize our actions. We minimize what we've done. Saul doesn't back down. He doesn't take, oh, your soldiers did it. It's fine. Saul just cranks up the heat. Or Samuel cranks up the heat on Saul. And he says, why? I mean, he makes it really explicit. Why? Verse 19. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. Anyone see the irony there? Saul's response? I completely destroyed the Amalekites, except but I didn't completely, because I brought back their king. And you can imagine the conversation where... <laughs> Samuel says, well, obviously you didn't completely destroy them because Agag is right here. And Saul, you know, <laughs> Saul's like, well, of course I didn't wipe them. I mean, but it was like 99.9% .9 I wiped them out. Like I almost completely obeyed. So you might as well, just, let's just call it even and say, I wiped them all out. He's minimizing what he's done. And this is a huge way that I think we, we try to deceive ourselves. We minimize Maybe we do something wrong and then we say, but it wasn't that big of a deal and I do all this other stuff. And in the grand scheme of things, it was one little infraction. And I could give a lot of examples, but let me give you this one. For some of you, your fantasy life is absolutely unchecked. And in your mind, your mind goes to a lot of places and if you're confronted on it, you say, well, sure, I fantasize about people, but it's not like I actually have, have acted on those fantasies. It's not like I've actually committed adultery or anything like that. It's not that big of a deal. But then you go to the person who's committed adultery, and what do they say? Well, sure, I committed adultery, but I didn't leave my spouse and kids, and I didn't hurt anyone. And then you go to the person who did leave their spouse and kids and say, well, yeah, I left my spouse and kids, but I didn't like physically hurt anyone. It's not like I did violence to people. It's not like I, I'm a mafia hitman or something. It's just adultery. And then you go to the mafia hitman. You know what they say? They say, well, sure, I killed some people, but there are people who really deserved it. It's not like I'm Hitler. And then you go to Hitler because it always goes back to Hitler. <laughs> and what does Hitler say? I don't know, but I know he didn't say I'm just pure evil. So much of the evil and darkness and sin in our world happens because we minimize it. And we play this comparison game. And Well, it might be bad, but it's not that bad. And it keeps us from seeing, you no, know, there's some real darkness in us. And this is one of the things Jesus drives home in the Sermon on the Mount. 
that like you think just being a little angry is fine or, or saying some bad. No, no, no. The, <laughs> the worst form of every sin, you know, it's like a seed embedded in the least form of that sin. So even if you're just kind of angry, Jesus says, you leave that unchecked, you're going to murder someone someday. You can't minimize it. Saul shifts the blame. He minimizes his actions. And lastly, he hides behind his religion. We see this kind of embedded in the first two examples, but explicitly in verse 21, after he says, well, I brought back Agag, their king, and the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder. And look at what he does here. The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And so here he's saying, okay, you're right. We kept the king, we kept the livestock, but we wanted to have the biggest, baddest worship service in history. We wanted to sacrifice all these animals. And Samuel, we were actually going to ask you if you'd be willing to preach. I don't know if you're up for it. But like, yeah, we might have disobeyed God slightly, but it's because it's like a surprise party. We lied, but we were, it was lying in service of a good truth. That's what we were doing. We kept them, but it's because we wanted to have this huge worship service for God. What's he doing? He's hiding behind his religion. Well, I might have disobeyed, but... It's not that big of a deal because I'm really religious and I actually did it in the name of religion. And this is a big one for most of us, for church folk, that it's very easy for us to hide behind our religion. You know, a modern day equivalent of what Saul's doing here is to say, well, maybe I cheat on my taxes, but I do it so I can be more generous. And so that makes it okay. That's really flagrant but there are all sorts of ways that we hide behind our religion. We don't speak truthfully to one another. Well, I don't want to hurt their feelings because as a Christian, I shouldn't hurt their feelings. I don't want to confront this person about gossip because, well, like, because then it could get really messy and I just want us to be unified. There's really small examples of it and there's really big examples of it. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I watched a documentary, PBS documentary about the rise of the KKK in North Carolina and how the Klan in North Carolina at one point in the early to mid-1900s, they had more members than all of the other members from other states combined. And it just kind of really took off in the state of North Carolina. And and I'm a history major. I've studied this stuff before. And if you know anything about it, you know most Klan members are, or at least claim to be religious, viewed themselves as religious But what was so shocking in the documentary is they actually had films of people giving speeches at these Klan rallies. And they had, you know, the burning cross, and they had husbands and wives getting up to speak who who claimed to be very religious, who claimed to be Christians. And what was just shocking is not only did did they not see the disparity between Christianity and their prejudice and oppression of people of color, They actually used their religion to justify what they were doing. I mean, when they got up there, they said, hey, we're just, we're trying to be good parents and good citizens. We're trying to look out for our kids. We're trying to preserve our religion and our way of life. So that's why we're pushing all of these different things. And so they they pulled a few obscure verses. They ripped them out of context to justify what they're doing. And they completely ignored the big teachings of the Bible on justice and mercy and caring for the oppressed and helping 
those who are helpless. And they were just so bold. And they would pray, and ministers would come, and they would pray. They would pray before the rallies. You know, people say religion, religion is responsible for all sorts of evil in the world, and as a pastor, I wholeheartedly agree. Religion, it might be the greatest source for self-deception in the world. That's why when you study history, you see a whole lot of people, they don't deal with the evil and darkness inside themselves. Instead, they hide behind their religion, and then they use that as an excuse for all kinds of evil and wickedness. And this is why Samuel, he finally says to Saul in verse 22, after Saul says, well, we were doing it to worship God. Samuel says, does the Lord delight in bird offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. Now, if you were here four weeks ago, Jesus said something similar. He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And we talked about how the word sacrifice there, it means kind of all of our religious activities. And so what, what Samuel is saying to Saul here is he's saying, Saul, God's not so concerned about all the sacrifices. So God doesn't want the sheep and he doesn't want the cattle. He wants you and he wants your devotion and he wants your honesty. And because you refuse to give it to him, he is tearing the kingdom away from you. That's where we get to the real root of the problem with self-deception. It, it keeps us from giving ourselves, our obedience, and our very selves to God. Because it's a lie and it's a ruse. It's dishonest. It hurts other people. It hurts ourselves. So I'd encourage you, before we get to the last point, which one of these lands with you? Are you a person who likes to blame other people? Ask that, but then ask, when, when do I tend to blame other people? If you really want to see the blind spot, when do I actually start blaming other people and pointing fingers? What parts of my life? What things am I most likely to, to minimize? And that'll be really hard to answer on your own because you've minimized them. Lastly, when you say, yeah, yeah, I might do this, but I'm still a good person. Whenever you think, but I'm a good person, whatever you said before that, it's probably a place you're deceiving yourself. So this is heavy. This is challenging. I read through this, and I'm like, gosh, where am I blind? What am I not seeing? If I were to stop here, it'd be super discouraging probably, but, but there's one more point. There's a cure. I really do believe that there is a cure for our self-deception that can lead to health and flourishing in our lives. To understand the cure, let me ask you a question. Why is it so hard to be honest? Why is it so hard to admit certain truths about ourselves? Why is it almost physically painful to acknowledge things in our life? You ever had that? I mean, you see it when people can't say, I'm sorry. Like they know that they were in the wrong and it's like physically it, it does something to them to actually say, you know what, I was, I was wrong and I'm sorry. Why is that? I believe it, it's because to, to admit certain truths about ourselves, not all, but certain truths about ourselves, it undermines our entire understanding of ourselves. Like we spend a lot of time perfecting this image of who we are and what we're about. 
And to go there and to be that honest, it's like standing in front of a mirror naked, you know? And I would guess 99 point something percent of the people here don't enjoy standing in front of a mirror naked. Why? Because it's painful, because you don't, you don't like what you see, you're afraid of what you see. You can't hide behind clothes, you can't hide behind makeup, you can't hide behind other stuff. It's just you in all reality, you as you really are. It's honesty. And radical honesty, it forces us to come to grips with the evil and sin in our own hearts. And this is really hard for religious folk because we don't want to acknowledge it. But the cure, the cure is found right in this text in verse 17. As Saul's making all these excuses, Samuel, he tries to counsel him. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. That's a really important verse. And here's what Samuel is saying to Saul here. He said, Saul, you used to see yourself as small and insignificant, but God made you great. He made you king. He poured out his favor upon you. Like he, he honored you and he lifted you up. You were small. He made you great. Then he presses in, so why in the world did you keep the livestock? Why are you trying to get more money? Why'd you keep the king and build a monument to your name? Why would you, God made you great, so why are you doing all these things? And the answer, of course, is that even though God made Saul great, Saul still felt so small. Saul was still small in his own eyes. He was radically insecure, hopelessly insecure. He knew God had anointed him, but he didn't really know it. Like he knew God had made him great, but it hadn't sunk into the very depths of his being. And because he didn't know the good news, he could never face the bad news. Now, if you're a Christian, I hope you see where this is going. Because in Jesus Christ, we who are small were made great because Jesus became small for us. Philippians 2. In Jesus Christ, God shows us eternal, unchanging favor, grace, and love. In Jesus Christ, you know, for those who believe, when God sees us who are in him, he doesn't see miserable, worthless sinners. He sees Glorious, beloved sons and daughters. This is why when Paul writes his letters, he doesn't begin to the miserable sinners in Corinth. You know, wrath and justice are coming. You know, like he doesn't, he writes to the saints, to the saints. Because in Christ, God lifts us up and he says, you're safe, you're secure, you're great in my eyes, I love you. We're actually told in other places that, that our lives are hid with Christ in God, which means all of the darkest stuff. It doesn't mean God can't see it, but it means God chooses not to see it, that Jesus covered it and will never be held against us, that he loves us wholly and completely, not because of how much work we've done, but because of the work Jesus has done. Now, if all of this is true and you understand it, then you're not afraid. Then you don't have to deceive yourself. And you can just be honest. I know I'm safe. 
when you know you're safe, then you can be honest. We know this interpersonally, right? They're not safe. I'm not going to speak truthfully. When you know you're safe, you can be honest with God, which leads to honesty with yourself and leads to honesty with others. I would argue that if you don't understand grace, you don't have a good grasp on grace, you will live your life perpetually struggling with self-deception. You know, as a pastor, I've dealt with some really hard counseling cases, really hard counseling cases. Um, And everyone's different. In some of the cases, people come and they are just totally defeated. They say, I don't know what to do with the end of my rope. I'm about to give up on God, my marriage, my family, my friendships, you name it. Those cases I actually like. Those cases there's a lot of hope for. The really hard cases, the hardest of cases that are so different, they all have one, one thing in common. And that one thing is that there was someone who was a part of the situation who was totally and completely self-deceived and they refused to see it. And no matter how much truth you brought, no matter how you tried to confront them, they couldn't hear it. I had a case four years ago like this that it was so obvious and everyone saw it and the person refused to see it. And they stuck and the marriage fell apart. Now, what I wanted to do and what I, what I used to do is like go with all the evidence. You know, here's the evidence. All right, let me read it to you. You know, and just sit down and just boom, boom, boom. But if people don't want to see the truth, they're not going to see the truth. It doesn't matter what evidence you have. They're going to shift the blame, minimize, hide behind religion and a number of other things to everything you bring against them. Every, every way you try to help them see. What I realized in all of that is to deal with this, this nagging problem of self-deception. You can't deal with it head on. You got to go indirect. You can confront it head on, but people aren't going to change. The way people actually change is by grace. The way people change is by getting them to a place where they realize that they're safe and that even the worst things that they've done can't can't outmatch the grace of God and that we can't outsend the grace of God. I've seen it happen a few times, but a lot of times it still hasn't happened because grace is so hard to get. And people would rather live a miserable life deceiving God themselves and other people that come to grips with the truth. And so my prayer for us, you know, as we bring this thing to a close is that we would be a people who would long for honesty in our lives, honesty with God, with ourselves, and ultimately with other people, that we would be open to the fact that maybe we're deceiving ourselves on some things. Three quick applications. Number one, to to journey out of self-deception, you got to know grace, but here's some practical things. You need honest community. Self-deception, by very definition, (laughs) means you're not going to be able to see it all on your own. You need other people, but I say honest community because a lot of community exists to just reinforce lies with one another. Like I'm going to continue to reinforce these lies in your life. You continue to reinforce my lies, and then we can all go home feeling better about each other and ourselves. I want to encourage you to get an honest community where people can say really hard things. And for honest community to work, at least in my second one, you have to have a holy curiosity about you. Honest community doesn't work if you don't want to listen. But I think grace enables us to become curious in a very holy way. 
Grace enables us to not get defensive anytime something's said about us, but to be curious. Huh. I wonder why they're saying that. You ever have someone confront you and you just get really angry right away? Let's flip it. You ever confronted someone and have them get really angry right away? Anyone? Am I the only one? All right, we need to learn how to speak truth to one another. What happens typically when you do this? You confront, and the people get really angry. And these days, I'm like, listen, this, I didn't get up this morning saying, hey, how can I have an awful conversation with someone I love? You know, like we, most, there are a few people who like to confront because they find joy in it. Most people don't. And to be able to receive the confrontation, be able to receive the truth, you got to have this curiosity. Okay, why am I so defensive? Why do I get so angry? What am I not seeing in myself? When am I most prone to these sins? Saul could never do it, and it's why his life ended in a tragedy. David could do it. Psalm 139, Psalm of David, he prays, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. That's holy curiosity. Search me, God. You know, David shows for us, he models for us that spiritual maturity isn't found in being sinless or faultless. It's found by being honest. And Jesus enables us to step into that painful work of honesty because we know we won't be cast out. So honest community, holy curiosity, and lastly, it's communion. That when we come to the Lord's table and we remember what Jesus has done, his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us, this is where we remember. We do this every week because we need reminders. And so we come to this table and we remember, my life is hid with Christ. I am justified. There's no condemnation. I have peace with God. And because of that, we can say, all right, let's get to work. What do I need to address in my life? Communion, coming to the table, being reminded of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, it enables you to be bold in your curiosity. And so my prayer is for you that you'd really take some time, examine yourself before you come to the table, that you wouldn't just do it in a mechanistic way. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus. You can find safety and healing in him. Let me pray.